The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're still in the Upper Room Discourse. We're, uh, we're making our way through that. We're actually in the, the Lord's Prayer, which is the kind of conclusion of this Upper Room Discourse. In this text that we're looking at today, Yeshua prays for us. You and me. This is a rare time when you get in the Bible and you say, this is directed at me. Okay? Us. Now, the Lord is just hours from His arrest, from His trial, from His crucifixion, and He prays for us. He's about to die a brutal, agonizing death on the cross, and He prays for us. Let that sink in. We're on His heart as He goes to the cross. Now, in this prayer, Yeshua really covers all time. He goes back to eternity past. He goes all the way into the future. Verse 5 looks back in time to the glory which our Lord had with His Father in eternity past. And verse 20-26 through looks forward in time, down through the ages of church history right up to the present moment. In this section, our Lord includes in His prayer all those who are going to be saved there, all those who are saved with Him, those are going to be saved all the way into the future, however long it goes. This prayer encompasses all believers for all time. I think that's why I'm so excited about this text. I mean, again, I don't know of another text that I can say He is speaking directly to me. He's praying for us in this passage. Now, this prayer started with verse 1. When Yeshua had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven, and He said, Father, the hour has come. So this is it. This is the last hour. This is the hour of His glory. You know, when we think of His glory, maybe we don't think of the crucifixion, but that's what He's talking about here. It's the crucifixion. It's the resurrection, the ascension. That's the glory. That's what's happening at this last hour. Now, in this final section of His prayer, Yeshua turns His attention to the future. He assumes the success of the disciples that He has just prayed for in 9-19. through He was praying for them and their mission. He assumes it's success because He goes right on to pray for those who are going to come because of them. Constant flow of new believers coming into the church. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Can you see a distinction here between those who were the Lord's disciples at that time and those who are going to come later to faith through the disciples' witness? He says, I do not ask for these only. Now these are His disciples that are with Him. Listening to Him pray. Those he prayed for in verses 11 through 19. Those he will still be praying for. But it now broadens out to every other believer. He says, but also for those who will believe in me. This is a present tense functioning as a future tense. This refers to all subsequent believers, even to Gentiles. And I think that's important in this prayer. He's praying for future believers, and we know who's coming in in the future. It's us, right? Us Gentiles. Look what he said back in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This verse refers back to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10. There the sheep pen represents Judaism. And Yeshua calls his own sheep out of that fold and thereby constituting them his flock. The sheep that remain in the pen are the unbelieving Jews. Now, if Yeshua has other sheep that are not from this sheep pen, not from Judaism, the reference must be to Gentiles. So, this is an allusion to Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, which talks about others who will be gathered by the Lord. And were those others? Now, <clears throat> these others are Gentiles who will be gathered into Messiah's flock alongside the restored sheep of Israel. So Yeshua is praying for those who will believe in Him. And again, this includes us. I want you to get that, okay? I'm going to stress that a little bit. I want you to get This is us. He's praying for us. He's praying for us, and in this prayer, we'll see some amazing things. Some arguments that I think are ungetoverable. Alright? Remember that He told us that He doesn't pray for unbelievers. Right? In verse 9, He says, I'm praying for them, the given... I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So he prays for the given. He's not praying for the world. Why? Because he doesn't love the world. He said, oh, but I thought he loves everybody. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, He doesn't love everybody. He doesn't pray for everybody. He loves the group that the Father has given him. Now, notice that Yeshua prays for those who will believe in him through their word. Now, there refers to the apostles and the others who are with them there in the upper room. Their word refers to the apostles and the disciples who are consecrated for the priestly service of the gospel. In other words, this is a a commissioning. He's setting these people apart for this. Look at uh, what Paul says in Romans 15, 16. He says, to be a minister of Christ Yeshua to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So this consecrated group is going to witness for Christ both orally and in writing. As the Messiah begins the gathering of the great harvest of believers into the church. And their priestly order of the new covenant is not based on heredity, like the old, not based on service to Israel, but on a spiritual call to worship that it's going to include all nations. Yeshua promised this by the prophet Isaiah back in the 8th century. Isaiah 66, 18-21. He says, For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Alright? Israel was God's people. He said, I'm going to gather all nations. Not just Israel. And they shall come and they shall see My glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations of Tarshish and Pol and Lud to draw the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. They're going to declare. That's one of the things these people are going to do, these consecrated believers. They're going to take the message to the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to Yahweh on horses and in chariots, and in leaders, and on mules, and on dromedaries. Anybody know what a dromedary is? Anybody know? Huh? Okay. 
Dang God, I thought I was going to be able to teach you something today, but you already know. Okay, well, listen. New American Standard, Complete Jewish Bible, and Lexham have camel here. King James has swift beasts. ESV, Young's Living, have dromedaries. Well, here's what a dromedary is. It's an Arabian one-hump camel, especially one of a light and swift breed trained for riding and racing. So it's like if you combine the different translations of swift beasts from the King James, because these are swift, they're not just normal camels, these are racing camels, swift beasts, you put all these together, you get dromedaries. How about that? <laughs> so ESV, Young's Living, you know, they basically tell you this is, now, I know maybe it doesn't help us because we're like, I don't know what a dromedary is. Well, hopefully when you come across something like that, you look it up and you say, oh, this is what it is. These are swift camels, all right? To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says Yahweh. So these are the ones He's consecrating here to be these Levites and priests to carry the message. This is what the apostles are consecrated to do. They're be part of this priestly service of the Gospel. They're about to gather in the nations. And they'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit as they preach the Gospel. And they're also going to write the New Testament. Now this began at Pentecost. When the Spirit of God came upon them, and they began to preach the Gospel, and many years later, the Spirit inspired them to start writing the books of the New Testament. So the teaching that God gave them is now in Scripture for every generation of human history. And believers, all of us, all Christians, have come to faith in Christ either through their preaching or through the writing of the original disciples. It's because of their word. So Yeshua is praying here for all believers, past and future. But again, the important thing of this text is He's praying for us. So these things that He prays for are ours. Now in verses 21 and 22, and this is all the further we're going to get today, all right? Uh, we'll pick it up next week, but this is, this is important stuff, I, and I, I want to try to emphasize, I think, what's really happening here, because I think these verses are greatly misused today. It says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Alright, this is a prayer for unity. Would you agree with that? Praying for unity, right? Alright, now let me ask you this. Does Yeshua get His prayers answered? Do you think Yeshua ever prayed for something the Father said, no, no, why are you asking such dumb stuff? Do you think that ever happened? Do you think He gets everything He asks for in prayer? I do too, alright? He does. So what does that mean here? It means that we are one even as the Father and the Son are one. The Lord prays for this unity in verse 11. He says that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 21, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. Verse 22, that they may be even one as we are one. Verse 25, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now, I think it's clear here that Christ is praying for unity, that the body be one. The question is, what does He mean 
by that they may be one. See, there's a lot of debate as to what the unity referred to here by Christ in these verses really means. So let's see if we can figure out, what is He praying for here? What does He want from the body? Now, the words, just as and even so, speak of the nature of our unity. It is to be like that of Yeshua and the Father. A common life, a unity of will, purpose of goal. It's not people being united because they're in the same container organizationally. It's people who are one because they share the same nature. All through the Gospel of John, we have seen that the Father and the Son are one. He's now praying for oneness that is like the oneness shared between the Father and the Son. So when Yeshua prays to His Father that these disciples may be in us, I think He's probably alluding back to the union language of the vine metaphor in chapter 15. This unity rests on the belief of God's truth, and it reflects the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Now, some say that, okay, he's asking, he wants us to be practically unified, to all get along, and they say this is the, the, it's a model. You know, the way the Father and the Son love each other is a model of unity, of our unity. Okay, what is a model? A model is a system or thing used as an example to follow or imitate, Right? So can we imitate the oneness of the Trinity? Look at how the Trinity all gets along. Let's be like that, people. He's not praying that we all get along in the church. All right, There's other Scriptures that talk about that. It's not here. He's not talking about some practical unity for several reasons. Number one, because He says it's a unity like that between the Father and the Son. You know any believers get along with that unity of the Trinity? Okay, my second point I think is even stronger. He's not talking about that unity because he prays for this unity. And what do we always say about what he prays? He gets. Meaning that if he's prayed for this, it's here. How do we know that? I mean, how do we know that Christ Prayers were always answered. We know because Christ never prayed for something that the Father didn't will. Why? We've seen it over and over. They're one, right? Let's go back to John 5.19. And this chapter 5 is just incredible on the deity of the Son. So Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. The Son can't ask for something that's not in accord with what the Father's will. He couldn't do that. Watch, for whatever the Son does, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In Yeshua, we see Yahweh. Why? Because he said, I and the Father are one. So he's not asking for things. Say, Father, I don't know if you like this or not, but how about do this? No. He's praying in accordance with the will of the Father. What Yeshua, whatever Yeshua did, was an act of Yahweh. Whatever He said was the Word of Yahweh. There's no moment in His life, there's no action which He ever did that didn't express the life and action of the Father. So important. You, this point you got to get. We're not moving on until you get this, okay? Whatever He prays for, He gets. 
Okay, forget you. You're not talking about how you pray. We pray for stuff all the time. It's far, far from the Father's will, okay? He is praying and will with the Father. Everything he asks, what the Father wants. You got to get this is going to really be important next week, all right? He gets what he asks for, all right? They are one. Carson, D.A. Carson writes this. It's impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the Father as another God. He's acting independently. He'd be a separate God. For all the Son does is both coincident with and coextensive with all that the Father does. They work together. He, he, chapter 5 is so full of that. In chapter 10, you know, I'm the 31, I'm the Father, one, they're one. He can't ask for something that's not going to get. And we talked about that before. Even though he knows this is going to happen, he still prays for it. So let me ask you this. Does the church today have a practical unity? You act like no. You don't think they do? No? Okay. How many Christian denominations are there? I'm talking Christian denominations. Huh? There's somewhere around 40,000 Christian denominations. Each denomination is distinct from other denominations. You know, we have those who play music, those who don't play music. You know, that's the distinction. We have all these distinctions, but they all believe they are practicing the Christian faith as it's taught in the New Testament. So no, the church today does not have a practical unity, which means that practical unity is not what Yeshua was praying for. Because He gets what He prays for. So you look around and you say, this is not what He's praying for. But let me tell you what, these verses are used over and over. For people, you know, we got to be together. This is what the Lord wants, all right? And He does want us to be unified, but this is not what He's praying for here. These verses are favorites of the promoters of the ecumenical movement. Back in the 1990s, evangelical leaders Chuck Colson, Bill Bright, and sadly to say J.I. Packer, and others signed the Evangelicals and Catholic Together document. It called for Protestants to come together with the Catholic Church in the many areas where we agree, setting aside our minor differences over matters like justification of faith. Now, you know I'm being facetious when I say that. Okay, minor matters. But that's one of the matters we have to set aside. Oh, justification of faith. In other words, let's back up the Reformation. Right? Because that's what the Reformation was all about. Justification by faith alone. We've got to return to this. And so they're saying, oh, let's back things up. The Reformation wasn't that important. Let's go back to getting along with everybody. Because that's what God wants. Well, then the Promise Keepers movement added pressure in the same direction at their National Pastors Conference in 1996. And popular author Max Lucado, you've all heard of him, right? He called on 40,000 pastors in attendance to set aside the labels of Catholic and Protestant and to recognize that we're all sailing on the same ship with Yeshua as our captain. No, I'm not on that ship. That ship sunk, okay? I'm not on that ship at all. We need to recognize that. That's what the Reformation was about. To restore doctrinal purity to the church. And many are calling believers today to set aside doctrinal differences for the sake of unity. Today, we have 
the emerging church movement, which pushes ecumenicism. The movement is strongly influenced by the postmodern philosophy that there's no absolute truth. Now, you just really can't know anything for sure. Or if there is, we don't know it. Okay? So we can't base anything on truth. Thus, we're being urged to be tolerant of all that claim to be Christian. And even non-Christian religion, we've got to be tolerant. They claim that doctrine is divisive. And those who claim to know truth are arrogant. You ever been accused of that? That's who you get accused of that if you, well, I know this is what the Bible says. Thus, for the sake of love and unity, we should set aside our doctrinal convictions and accept one another without criticizing doctrinal beliefs. That's hogwash, people. We can't set aside doctrine. We put that away and we got nothing. I talked to a woman not long ago who was involved in one of these emerging churches. She was so excited because they said, I can tell them about preterism and they accept that. I said, of course they do. They have no problem with any doctrine. You know, that's the thing. Any, whatever you believe is okay. The only thing wrong to believe is that somebody else is wrong in their belief. That's the only wrong thing. So they're just, whatever. We'll take you, whatever. We get along. Knock down these walls. <sighs> to them, doctrine doesn't matter. It's all about experience. I'm very concerned about those who promote unity with little concern for doctrine. We can't unite over error. We just can't do it. In this prayer, Yeshua is asking God to do what God already planned to do and promised to do for all who put their trust in Him. The petition then is not that we would get along with each other, but that the body of Christ would be one. Now as we look at Scripture, we see that unity was a present possession of all believers. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4.3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, he's saying here the unity was already a fact for believers. But they were to be diligent to preserve that unity. Then there's also unity that wasn't theirs yet. Drop down to verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. This unity of faith was not yet a reality during the transition period. Forty years from... Pentecost to Holocaust. The church was growing to maturity. Once it was mature, they would attain to unity. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2.21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. You seen any structures growing? Any buildings? Any temples growing? Well, this was a living temple. Because it's spiritual. It's no longer that brick and mortar temple. It's a spiritual temple. So it's growing in the transition period. It's growing in the Lord. In Him you also are being, present tense, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church during the transition was growing so it would become a dwelling place. And guess what? God moved in in AD 70. Church was complete, was fulfilled at the parousia of Christ. He moved in it. Now, grammatically, there are three phrases in 4.13, each beginning with the word attain to. So, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's one phrase. Attain to a mature man. That's the second phrase. And attain to the measure of the statute which belongs to the fullness of Christ is the third phrase. 
Now, attain is used nine times in the book of Acts to refer to travelers arriving at their destination. Thus, each of these phrases involves a process that results in a goal. So Yahweh's purpose for the church was that it would be conformed into the image of Yeshua the Christ. And that took place in AD 70 when the Lord returned, bringing in the new heaven and new earth where we see Him face to face. Moving into the temple, the living temple. So the coming in of our Lord for His people brought them to full maturity, closed the canon of Scripture, brought the gifts to an end. When the body was matured in the likeness of Christ, the Lord returned to take His bride. So what we have in the transition period, again, this is very important you get this, is the already but not yet. Okay, now most people today still use that phrase, already but not yet. Well, the not yet is not not yet anymore. Okay, after 8070, there's no not yet. It's all already. But they use that verse because they don't realize what time it is. This is the first century. When we talk about unity in Christianity, we, one of the things that has to come to our mind, especially if we're thinking first century, is what kind of unity? What's one thing that Paul stressed about unity? What, what, who was to be unified? It was ethnic unity. There was no greater divide in the first century church than between Jews and Gentiles. But Paul emphasized that the glory of the church is that Christ removed the barrier between those two diverse groups and He made them one. Look at Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. See, the circumcision was a technical designation for Israel. So Gentiles, they called them, you're the uncircumcised. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles were strangers to the promises, the covenants of promises. That's the root of the olive tree that Paul talks about in Romans 11. This was the position of all Gentiles. They were hopeless. They were without God. It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Yeshua... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. Now there's a unity. There's this oneness that we keep hearing about in the Lord's Prayer. And has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, we've been brought near. We, Gentiles, have been brought near to the God of Israel, Yahweh, through the blood of Christ. We have been grafted into the roots of Israel. And notice that these two groups are now one. Verse 16 through 18 says, And might reconcile in both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit. To the Father. So both groups, Jews and Gentiles, are in one body now. And in Christ we have access to the Father. This is what Paul taught in Romans 11 about the olive tree. Jews and Gentiles grafted into the same tree, sharing the same root. And Paul calls this unity of Jew and Gentile in the body the mystery. And I really believe this is what Christ is praying about, the oneness. 
Because in the future, that none of the disciples had a clue about, in the future, God was going to do something really strange. He was going to bring hated, despised, dog Gentiles into the body of Christ. Oh my word, that was nauseating to a Jew. No way. And that's he's praying that there would be one. Disciples didn't have a clue about this. Because it wasn't going to happen for a while. All right, it was maybe almost 10 years before the Gentiles started coming into the church. Well, look at Romans 16, 25 and 26. Paul talks about this mystery. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. Now it's brought about. Now it's being disclosed. Okay. Now, the use of the perfect tense in the divine passive expresses the, the distinct silence by God's pleasure when it came to the mystery. In other words, this was hidden in ages past. Nobody knew about this mystery. Paul said, now it's being revealed. A mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but is now revealed in Scripture. The word translated mystery is from the Greek word mousterion. Vines, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, writes this. In the New Testament, it denotes not the mysterious, but that which being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation, and is made known in a manner... And at a time appointed by God to those who are illuminated by His Spirit. In the ordinary sense, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. So Paul had this mystery that he's teaching now that was hidden before. In Colossians, Paul writes this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. He talks about the mystery that is now revealed to the saints. Now what's interesting, and I think important to understand here, is the word mystery in Paul's writings is always connected closely to Paul's stewardship. Look at verse 25 here. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden. So Paul associates these two words, mystery and stewardship, many times in his own letters. And here's the thing. Paul's stewardship was tied up in the deliverance of the ministry. This is Paul's stewardship. We could almost say that the sum total of what's been committed into his hands was the mystery. Paul here, you got the mystery. Take it to the world. Now Paul's use of this word musterion doesn't indicate a secret teaching a rite or ceremony revealed only to some elite initiates, as the mystery religions teach, but it's truth revealed to all believers in the New Testament. This truth, as Paul says in Colossians 1.26, has now been revealed to the saints. Is that which has been hidden from ages and generations, namely the old covenant people in air, but now is revealed. In Ephesians 3, Paul unfolds in detail the mystery. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, there's that stewardship, 
of the grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So we see here that Paul's stewardship, again, is the mystery, which means that Yeshua's disciples didn't understand this. They didn't know Paul yet, okay? Paul was going to come along later. But Paul says in verse 4, Look, you can understand how I gained my insight into the mystery of Christ. God revealed it to me. So what is the mystery? He says, well, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery. So what's the mystery? Well, it's not the fact that the Gentiles are getting saved. That's not the mystery. The Tanakh taught that. What's the mystery? It's, is it the revelation of the Gospel now? No, the Gospel that Paul says was taught from the beginning. In Romans 1 he says, was something that was promised beforehand in the writings of the prophets. The Gospel was promised. They knew the Gospel was coming. What's hidden? What's now manifest? What's now made known? Verse 6 tells us that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. You can't imagine what this means to a Jew in the first century. You know, pick the most hated group you can come up with that you can think about. And God's saying, you know, that group's going to be joined with you in the same body. You're going to be one in Christ. That's the idea here. In the Tanakh, the Gentiles were blessed through the Jews. They had to come to God through Israel. But now as a result of the apostolic preaching through Paul and the revelation of the mystery, they can come in on equal footing. They don't have to become Jews anymore. They're saved on the same grounds they also possess the same blessing as the Jews. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. So the apostles regard Jew and Gentiles being united in Christ in His day. That's the mystery. The union of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ on equal grounds. In Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's that mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ in you. If you look at this in the original text, what he means by in you is in Gentiles. That's the thing about this that's so so significant. Christ in the Gentiles. In this new creation, there is no longer division between Jew and Gentile. Both are united in Christ. Both form one new man. Let's go back to Romans. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my Gospel, and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that is kept secret for long ages. What does He mean when He says here that the mystery that was kept secret for long ages? It's probable that the Apostle means that from the time of creation, to the time of Christ. In the ages of world history expressed here, a hush came by divine desire over the revelation of future relationship between Jew and Gentile. Now let's just say that he's not talking about the Gospel. That was not a secret, okay? Anybody know when we got the first hint on the Gospel? Genesis, narrow it down. 
3.15, the Proto-Evangelum. God's going to provide, all right? So we go all the way back to Genesis. We don't have to go too far in Genesis. We come to Genesis 22, and Abraham offers his son Isaac, right? As a last-minute substitute, with, uh, look at a ram with a crown of thorns on its head, stuck in a thicket. Let's sacrifice that. That's Christ. We see Christ as the substitute. And what does he say? My son God will provide himself a lamb. He did, right? We see Christ in the Passover lamb offered for Israel. We see him in the scapegoat and the goat offered on the Day of Atonement. We see him in the prophecies of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. We see him in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see him in Hosea and Micah. We see him in the good news proclaimed in Zechariah and Malachi. So the gospel was revealed from the very beginning, but the mystery was not. See, this great teaching of the mystery was enwrapped in a silence of the past. But now, Paul says, it's being manifest. It's now been disclosed. Three times the apostle says this. He says it here. He says it in Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians 1. He draws a contrast in each place between past and now. The mystery which has been kept secret for long ages, but now is manifest. So he thinks of this as something now manifest, something new. The public manifestation has been expressed in what Paul and the apostles saw happening. But it's also revealed to them, and the explanation of what was happening came to them from the Lord. So was this truth absolutely unknown in Old Covenant times? Or was it only relatively unknown? That is, was very little said about it. Well, the apostles draw a contrast in these passages, but now. I think in light of the apostles now, and in light of the specific statement was kept secret for long ages, that it refers here to something that was absolutely hidden in the Old Covenant. This Jew and Gentile being one body, that was not known. Notice what Paul says Ephesians 3.5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Okay? Has now been revealed. Paul says that he's a steward of the mystery and that no revelation of this ministry was given in the Tanakh, but that it was revealed for the first time in the New Testament. Now let me ask you something, believers. Have you ever heard the saying, there's nothing new in the New Testament? You ever heard that? Do this. You have heard it. Okay. Yeah, you just heard it. Well, look at this. All right. Listen to me, believers. There's nothing new in the New Testament. Everything that Paul and its writers taught was nothing but the Hebrew Scriptures taught would happen. You know why I said you've heard that? Because I said that. That's a quote from me. Okay? That's how I know you, you've heard that before. All right? You might not remember, but you've heard it. I found this quote in three different messages. That means I was wrong at least three times. Okay? <laughs> Listen. This is why I'm always telling you, don't believe what I say. Search the Scriptures to see if it's so. Because that's wrong. When I said there's nothing new in the New Testament, I even quoted Ephesians 3. But I took the comparative conjunction hos, which is as, as restrictive. Meaning that the mystery was partially revealed in the Tanakh but has now been fully revealed. Well, the problem was, when I said that, I had never done a verse-by-verse in-depth study of Ephesians. 
it's amazing what you learn when you study. And I have people write me questions all the time. Hey, what do you think about this verse? And I write them back, haven't studied that. That's the simple answer I'm giving you. I'm not going to try to make some... I've never done an in-depth study on that. I'm trying. I'm working my way through the New Testament. All right? If I live long enough, maybe I'll get through it. But I'm not commenting on stuff I haven't really studied in depth because I've learned. (laughs) I'm wrong, okay? I've never done a study. Well, now that I've done an in-depth study, I'm convinced that when Paul tells us in verse 5, as it has been now revealed... That this comparative conjunction here, host, as, it's translated, is descriptive, meaning that no revelation of this mystery was given in the Tanakh, but that it was revealed for the first time in the New Testament. That's why it's a mystery. So I think there is something new in the New Testament. And that's why the Lord praying this for His disciples, I pray it all be one. And they're like, Lord, we, we, we want to be one. We're all, we get along. They couldn't get along with each other. But when you bring Gentiles into the mix, boy, you got some serious trouble there, okay? All right, in verse 6, in the Greek, it says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, all right? It begins with the present infinitive, amy, this, which explains the content of the mystery. Paul tells us that the Gentiles, the ethnos, are fellow heirs with the fellow members of one body. And they're fellow partakers of the promises of Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. That's the secret. That's the relationship that did not exist in the Tanakh. Jew and Gentile, ethnos, would have equal standing before Yahweh because of faith in Yeshua. They never conceived that. I mean, we'll allow Gentiles to come in if they come in as a proselyte. They're never really on equal footing with us, okay? All right, you, when you went to worship at the at temple, you had the court of the Gentiles. What's that? You people, you stay out there. Okay, the spiritual people will come in. You can come. We want you to know about Yahweh, but you stay out in your court. With the little plaque on the wall all the way around the temple, it says, do not, if you're a Gentile, do not cross this line by punishment of death. Wouldn't that be great to go worship as a Gentile? Come on, let's go. Oh, don't cross that line. Talk about feeling like a second-class citizen. Good gracious. So this is the thing, bringing people together. Now listen, when people who are divided in the world display love for one another in the church, the world takes notice of that, don't they? So that they, the world may believe. I want you to be one. Why? So the world will believe. You sent me, Father. So although the unity and vision in this chapter is not institutional, I hope you got that, this purpose clause at the end of verse 21, so that, shows that the unity is meant to be observable. Jew and Gentile loving one another in the body of Christ, that's visible. Yeshua's disciples are made known by their love, right? 1335, by this. All people will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. Wow, I guess why people don't know we're his disciples today, huh? Because we're going to love one another. Well, the display of mutual love among Yeshua's disciples, especially when the Greeks started coming in, and there's this mutual love, it shows something's going on here. These groups hate each other. The love for one another shows that they really do follow the teaching, and they possess the life. 
And when we have individuals who are diverse backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, who all proclaim the supremacy of the Lord Yeshua as the only way to salvation, this gives evidence that Yeshua really was who He claimed to be. It vindicates His teaching and so glorifies Him. The way believers treat one another is an essential component to proclaiming Yeshua to the world. they got to see. And this is, again, this is a first century thing here that there's diverse, and it goes on today. Because you've got people from all different diverse groups when they come to Christ, it's, they come together and they worship together, and it's amazing. He says that the world may believe. Now, I believe he uses the word world here, cosmos, the same way he does in John 3.16. Not every single person, but the elect of both Jew and Gentile. World, beyond Jews. Remember, you've got to keep a Jewish mentality. The Jews thought it was them and them only. Okay, So the world is beyond you. It's Jews and Gentiles. And only the given can believe. Now verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, the glory that you have given me, I've given them, that's proleptic. You know what that means, right? We've used that a bunch of times. That describes an event that hasn't yet happened as though already passed. Okay? Since these people whom he speaks about hadn't probably even been born yet. <laughs> They're not even alive. They haven't believed yet. It's proleptic. They will do so later on account of the disciples' continuing ministry. So what glory was Yeshua talking about here? Another point of argument among scholars, alright? Some say that Yeshua was probably speaking of his bringing the full knowledge of God to them. I wouldn't have a problem with that. The revelation of God results in glory. When believers understand and believe the revelation of God that Yeshua brought, they become partakers of that glory. Well, I think that the glory here that he's talking about, the glory that you've given me, I'm going to give to them. I think he's talking about the message, the revelatory message of the new covenant. That's the glory. Let's go to Paul in Corinthians to see where, how this, he talks about this glory. Paul says he has made us, the apostles, sufficient ministers of the new covenant. All right, this is the promise of Jeremiah. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. See the contrast? This is a chapter 3 contrast all through. For the letter kills. That's the old covenant, people. You know what amazes me? People want to go back under that old covenant. Oh, we keep the old covenant. Really? The letter kills. It's the Spirit that gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, you know, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? This is Paul, who's a minister of the New Covenant, saying the Old Covenant was a ministry of death. Carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So he's saying that that Old Covenant, it had glory because it was bringing people to God to understand Him, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So the Old Covenant had glory, but guess what? The New Covenant, far more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness will far exceed that. Would you agree with that? The Old Covenant was a letter that killed. The Spirit gives life. The Old Covenant was a ministration of condemnation. You were always under guilt. Never feeling free. The new covenant is a ministration of righteousness. Now watch what he says in 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's talking here, we're being transformed. This is, this is a transitional verse. Those people in the transition period, they were being transformed from old covenant glory to new covenant glory. Now people, you want to use this verse today, oh, as we study the Word of God, as we get in there, we keep getting transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory. It's a whole bunch of steps. It's two glories, people. Old covenant glory, new covenant glory. All right? And that's the transition. The context is two covenants. And let's just remember that for Christ, the epitome of His glory was displayed on the cross. That's new covenant glory. He paid the price. We are free. So here, Christ prays for the unity of believers. And I believe the unity, the oneness that He's praying for, is the mystery that Paul talks about. The Jew and Gentile will be one in the body of Christ. We know that He gets what He prayed for. We know that Jews and Gentiles, we know that we are one. We have the same standing in the body as Jews do. Believing Jews. I want you to remind you again, Yeshua is praying for things that are sure to come to pass. We saw this in verse 5 of 17. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory that I had with You before the world was. Yeshua knew this was going to happen. He's about to die. He's about to be resurrected. He's about to go back into the presence of the Father. Yet He prayed for it. He also knew the disciples would share the unity that the Trinity has because they'd be all in the same body. He knew the Jews and Gentiles would become one in the body of Christ, the church. And it would be an amazing demonstration of the world of the truth of Christianity. Believers, Yeshua gets what He prays for. Which really gets exciting as we look at the final section of this prayer next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray as we look at this prayer that You pray in the presence of Your living disciples then. And Father, as we realize that it's not only for them, but it's for those who will believe on You because of their Word, which is us, Lord. Thank You. Thank You that this applies to us. Lord, thank You for Your grace in revealing, literally revealing the heart of God to us. Lord, as we begin next week to look at this final section, I pray you would grab our hearts with the reality that you get what you ask for, and what you ask for, we have. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments, Jack. Okay. Well, the ram was stuck by his head in a thicket of thorns, and it pictures a crown. That's Christ with the crown of thorns. See, there's a lot of symbolism there. The text doesn't say that. It says he was, his head was caught in a thicket, which is a thing of crowns. So that's why you never saw that. I made it up. <laughs> what? Well, that's because you'll come back, all right? Listen, I really, my intention was to do this whole section. But as I got in there, I thought, man, this, 
we got to understand the unity. we got to understand what's going on. In the next section, like I said, I, I want to just do that because it's so powerful. All right? Keep this in mind all week. Shua gets what he prays for. And then read that text. Anybody else? Thanks, Jack. I don't want this to sound like I didn't get anything. I missed the whole message. But <laughs> I just, you know, wonder about the unity with other churches. Uh, I mean, we all agree on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and there's no. Salvation. We all? Who's we all? Well, most of the Christian churches, okay? <laughs> the group's getting but, smaller. Yeah. Um, but we get into the weeds, and they don't want to have anything to do with us, you know? Well, again, this unity has nothing to do with organizational, we all get along type unity. That's very important, because we don't see that today, because it's not here. The church fights over everything. I've heard church splitting over the color of carpet they put in. I mean, come on, people. Are we that shallow? I wanted green. I wanted pink. I mean, what, do you want to fight over something so stupid? You know, we, it's like, because we're so, I want what I want. If I don't get what I want, I'll take my ball and go home. That's just, the Bible doesn't care what color carpet you put in your church building. You know, well, they should have done half green, half pink, you know. Everybody would be like, you sit on this half, because then there would be a division. I'm of the green, I'm of the pink, you know. Church loves to divide. Yes, Jimbo. Okay, see, welcome to their church. There are disagreements. I see someone walk away from the other, other person, I'm not coming back. If you don't hear why. If I see someone forgive somebody else, there should be an incentive to keep coming back here. That's you right. Well, that's the thing. We're supposed to forgive one another. That's what it's all about. And listen, you don't have to agree with everybody to get along with everybody. Now, there's some points that are pretty fundamental, okay? The, the fundamental doctrines of the faith. We better hang on to it. Listen, to me, Yeshua is God. If you don't believe that, I don't think you're a believer. I mean, especially after coming through John. That's just way too clear. I know that offends some of the Jehovah Witnesses. I'm sorry. It's the truth. If you don't like it, leave. Take your ball and go home. Because you're not going to hear anything but that from here. All right? Yeshua is the Christ. Him and Yahweh are one. He is God. Yes. <laughs> and there's, you know, we have, to, we have to stand by the fundamentals. But listen, we fight over such, you know, petty little things. All right, baptism. Do we sprinkle? Do we dunk? Who cares? You know, we don't have to fight over that. Do both if it doesn't make you happy. Whatever you got to do, you know? Get along with one. The, the fundamentals are important. There's so many peripherals, you know? And there's people out there who think we, preterists, are not believers. Because somehow eschatology is part of the gospel now. When that happened, I don't know. And I always ask him. So believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and you have the correct eschatology and you should be saved. Where is eschatology ever connected with the gospel? But we're not Christians because we think he kept his word. Anybody who believes something foolish like that can't be part of the body of Christ. I know I'm being facetious, but come on, people. Come on. But there's others who realize, okay, eschatology, there's a lot of different, there's four different ones out there, you know. We're not dividing over that. Good. Good, because I don't think it's a fundamental of the faith. I really don't. Salvation, that's a fundamental. Okay? And when you want us to you know, join with Catholics who believe you got to help Yeshua out with justification. What He did was good and fine, but it's not enough. 
Okay, you have to add to the treasury of merit by your good works. Builds nothing but pride. Builds nothing. And listen, if you, get, if you earn more merit than you need to get out of purgatory into heaven, your extra merit can be accredited to somebody else. Wow! You could be an overachiever and help other people get to heaven. I mean, do you see how corrupt that system is? That's right. Well, that's, I'll tell you, that's the biggest thing with the Catholic Church is, is the indulgences and payment, okay? And this is what Luther had such a big problem with, okay? Tetzel and the indulgences. You know, you pay this money, you help your... Because everybody goes to purgatory, okay? You're a Christian, the best Christian in the world. You go to purgatory. How long do you stay there? Depends on how much money you get. Guess what, though? You don't know when they get out, so you don't want to quit giving. It's a perfect system. And they're the, one of the wealthiest organizations in the world because they figured it out. And they keep people in bondage and they keep making money. And we're supposed to be one with them. I'm not. Not me. No. doesn't mean I can't get along with Catholics because I think there's some Catholics that are believers. They see the truth of the Word of God. And I say to them, get out of that system. That's a bad system. Mariolatry, that's enough right there. To you know, We worship Mary. No, you don't. Anybody else? Questions? Comments? Yes? Well, personally, I think uh, everybody walk is different. Everybody is different. You know, God created people to, to do what He ordained them to do. But I think, you know, I think, you know, I have to work on myself. And so looking at other people, I have to work on myself and, you know, look in the mirror and try to fix myself and learn about God and what he preaches and teaches in the Bible instead of looking to the left and looking to the right. I think it's key to me, no matter where you are, I think it's key to for, for me to look at myself and, 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 and ask God, communicate with God on a daily basis on how to fix me, you know. And in the meantime, at the same time, I think uh, we need to have our you know, daily devotion, whether it's in the beginning of the day or the end of the day, but have our daily devotions and stick to it, you know. That's right, we've got to spend time with him. You don't get to know if you don't spend time. We're able to learn and, and, and know what he wants us to know and learn yeah, and be a, how he wants us to place us where he wants us to be, not where we want to be. And that's an important point that you made. Listen, when you're studying, what does God want me to be? You know what we do too often with the Bible? We read it and we go, oh, so-and-so should see that verse. That really applies to so-and-so. Oh, I wish, i got to tell him about this verse. Listen, when you read, let the Lord speak to you. He can talk to the other people as well. You know, but we like, oh man, that, that has nothing to do with me, but boy, they should read this. And we want to always tell other people how they want to live when, yeah, you're so right. If we just work on our own walk, our testimony is much more powerful than what we say at times. I've got a couple of questions here from... Uh, Okay, just someone says, great sermon, thank you. I uh, appreciate that. Oh, uh, yeah, it says, seems to be more evidence toward putting I.O. to rest. I.O., anybody know what I.O. is? Israel only. It's a doctrine that God only loved the Jews. He doesn't love anybody else. <laughs> to me, it's one of the most ridiculous views, because if, if that is your view, God loved only Israel... 
Nobody else. What are you doing reading the Bible, going to church? What do you care about anything? Everything ended in AD 70. Beyond that, there's nothing. I mean, it's the most, one of the most futile, self-defeating views I've ever heard in my life. Jeff? I can see a lot of Israel in view because, you know, in Hosea, we know that they, he divorces Israel and he says it's going to be brought back. And then we know in Ezekiel, it says he's going to join the root back. <coughs> and then we know in Jeremiah, he's going to bring them back. And then you find Christ saying he's only coming to the lost sheep and he's bringing the lost sheep back. So all of that makes sense. But then we get to the point where all of that we know is going to happen. But here he says this is a great mystery. Yeah. So this is not that. <coughs> right. We know that. Right. So this can't be that. So this is something tough. <laughs> and what they try to do is they try to say the ten lost tribes, they were ethnos. That's true, they were. God said, you're no longer my people. I'm not your God. So they're ethnos. They're part of the nations. But when He called them, He also called people that weren't Israelites. Ever. That's how it started. Okay? God promised as soon as He left the nations and called Israel, one of His first things was, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. In other words, I, I'm done with those people. I put them under false gods. I take God, these gods are going to rule over those people. I'm taking Israel. I'm your God. But guess what? I'm going to get them back. So yeah, Io is, is real. Like I said, if you believe that, just go away. Because you know, there's nothing for you. In the Scripture, there's nothing for you in church. There's nothing. It all ended. So go away. Take it with you.